All right, welcome to another episode of the Cannons Mass Construction Podcast. I'm Tori Fodder, coming to you here from Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, last time we were in part two of our three-part series on native lands, and we looked at what recognized title includes, some of the parameters of it. Uh, we looked at executive order reservations and federal uh, set-aside lands, whether those are compensable when they're taken back by the government of the United States. And we looked at submerged lands very briefly and you know what rights Indians have to lands uh, beneath the rivers and lakes, uh, looking at U Montana v. U.S. in 1981. Today, we're going to pick up with a second case on submerged lands and close out with two cases dealing with allotted lands and what the rights of tribes and the rights of individuals are to allotted formerly reservation lands. Uh, so starting with the first case, U.S. v. Cherokee Nation, case in 1987, but we go back in time in this case to 1946 when the McClellan Kerr Project creates a channel along the Arkansas River where it joins from the Mississippi River all the way down to Catoosa, Oklahoma. So this is a public works project back in the 40s. Um, in 1970, the Supreme Court finds for the Cherokee Chickasaw Choctaw tribes that they have fee simple title to the riverbed underlying the Arkansas River. Now this is a very different situation than what we had in, in Montana. Um, the, the reason that they were able to, to obtain fee was, was due, to, due to treaties, and a very particular treaty circumstance that allowed SCOTUS to find for the tribes back in 1970. So what the tribes wanted then, after this 1970 ruling, was compensation for damages to the riverbed interest caused by the United States government in the McClellan, McClellan Kerr project. And, and this is a bit of a, a quirk, right? Because on the one hand, you know, it's, it's not sufficient to say that you've got title to the riverbeds in fee simple, but this, this quote improvement actually damaged, in their view, their riverbed interest. So in 1971, Congress says, hey, we're not going to pay it. They refused to fund the claim for damages. They did provide judicial relief, which is merely an opportunity to sue um, and let the court settle it. The Cherokee Nation comes and argues that actually, hey, this was a, this was a taking. And the district court agreed. Fast forward to the Tenth Circuit, and they say, yes, because while the improvements constituted a navigable servitude, this didn't shield in any way the federal government from liability for the damage that it had done. And and the the Tenth Circuit approach was we need a balancing test. We need to balance public interest versus private ownership. So the issue in this case boils down to whether the United States has to pay the Cherokee Nation compensation for damages to the riverbed caused by navigational improvements that it made on the Arkansas River. The tribe calls them damages. Rehnquist calls them improvements in his uh, opinion. And that probably gives you an idea of how the case is going to go. 
So Rinkwa steps in in his analysis in Cherokee Nation and says there's no balancing test required. When the government's using its power to regulate navigational use of deep streams that penetrate our country for navigable servitude, and the federal government actually has a dominant servitude that goes beyond that and ex extends to the entire stream and the entire stream bed below. So in making these improvements, it's a proper exercise of such power. It's not open to any invasion of any property rights in streams or lands beneath. Applying that framework, the Cherokees say they have title to the riverbed, that that's unique given the ruling in Choctaw Nation, which held that the Cherokees and the Choctaws, Chickasaws, owned the riverbed beneath the Arkansas River in their territories. Again, that's a whole quirk of this case that distinguishes it from Montana v. U.S. There was actually a ruling on point, and the Supreme Court concluded that they owned the riverbed in fee simple. Um, the Cherokees argue, though, that as a result of this ruling, what, the, what happens to the United States, in effect, is it abandons its dominant navigational servitude. So in other words, this finding that we own the land in fee simple under the rivers, that constitutes an abandonment of this, this dominant servitude. Um, the Choctaw mm -hmm. case doesn't say that the U.S. had no interest in submerged lands. The parties clearly understood what the navigational servitude was uh, and how dominant it was, no matter how the question of the riverbed ownership was resolved, according to Rehnquist. And so the conclusion is, it's, it's a bit confusing, but the conclusion in, in simple terms is that the tribe's interest here do not include the right to be free from navigational servitudes. And the exercise of such servitudes is not an invasion of any property rights in the streams or lands underlying. And we'll pause here for a second to unpack some of that because it's it is a bit curious. Um, I, I suppose it's like any any landowner in that sense. If you if you own lands, you can own it in fee, um, but it may be subject to easements. It may be subject to other other use factors. Um, that's not uncommon in, in American law. Um, really, what the tribes were arguing is that we own the riverbed in fee simple. We didn't consent to these quote improvements. And so we should be compensated for damages um, since this was done to our property. And it's a very reasonable uh, position. However, in Rehnquist is arguing, well, all landowners are subject to the dominant navigational servitude of the United States. And that's true. That goes into sort of law of the sea, law of, <laughs> law of waters, things that we won't get into necessarily, but... It's the idea that the, the United States owns the riverways, and any any navigable waterway um, can be subject to kind of the whimsy of improvement that the United States government seeks to impose. And some of these are are admittedly for good measure. I mean, the a, an access port from Catoosa, Oklahoma, all the way to the Mississippi River that's great for commerce, shipping, getting things. Um, transported inland from the Mississippi River. So there's there's some wisdom in this this policy or this principle of navigational servitude. Um, here though it 
it does not cut in the tribe's favor. And so the, the tribes lose um, lose this case here in, in U.S. v. Cherokee Nation. So, I mean, if there's anything to take from, from this case and from Montana, it's probably that <laughs> it's really hard for tribes to assert their ownership interest um, to lands underlying navigation navigable waters. Um, and we see that in Montana. It was an outright no that there's a it's like like an easement. And here, you know, even though they own it, well, it's subject to um, the dominant servitude, the dominant navigational servitude um, imposed by the United States government. Shifting gears entirely now, looking at the next two cases on allotted lands. In Northern Cheyenne Tribe v. Hollowbreast, a Supreme Court case out of 1976, we're, we're looking at what the rights are of tribes and individuals um, to these lands. And so in 1926, we get the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. It gets established by statute. It provides for the allotment of tracts of land to tribal members. So again, it's a bit delayed, but it's the same GAW, the same General Allotment Act principles. Uh, we want, we feel like we've given the, the Indians too much land, so we're going to come back in and, and trim it down. And the way we do that is we give 160 acres in this reservation. We put a big grid on it. 160 acre squares goes to one male head of household and then to another for 25 years in trust. And then after that period of trust, the idea was that um, individual Indians would um, get owned their land in, in fee simple. All of that, that changes over time. So here we have that process going on on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. And in Section 3 of the treaty, it provides that minerals and resources on the reservation are reserved for the tribe, and they can be leased, provided that 50 years later, the mineral rights go to the allottees or heirs, and that any unallotted lands, they have to be held in common by the tribe, subject to control and management as Congress deems fit. So the year of the case is 1976. In the 60s, there were major energy needs ramping up for the United States. There's no mining going on at that point on the reservation. So it's very much an an actual state of things. We're talking about expediency. There's a real need and growing need for more power. And in 1968, we get the passage of the Indian Mineral Rights, or <laughs> in, we, get the, we get the termination of those rights by Congress, and they become reserved for the tribe with a couple of caveats. Uh, first is that the courts have to determine whether there was an intent by Congress to vest those rights in the individual Indians, and that's subject to the outcome of the court case we're considering. So for the district court, <clears throat> the question was, did the individual allottees receive a vested interest in the mineral rights? If so, then those rights are protected by the Fifth Amendment, and they're entitled to compensation. If the allottees did not receive a vested interest in the mineral rights, then the minerals remain in perpetuity for the tribe. 
So this is a this is a case where we've pit an individual Indian member that that had a lot of land against the against the interest of the tribe. <clears throat> and the tribe is arguing if you look at the plain language in the treaty it indicates a grant of an expectancy that's a mere hope of mineral rights. And the Alatis are saying no the plain language of the treaty indicates a grant of a future interest. And that's a that's a legal property right that's enforceable. Both we can look at it objectively. I think both interpretations are consistent with the wording. And so what we have to do here then is actually look uh, to congressional intent. So again, our issue in the case, did Congress actually terminate the grant? without rendering the U.S. liable to pay compensation? Or did the Allotment Act, which gave the LIT surface lands, also give them vested rights in the mineral deposits beneath them? And, and the framework for, for deciding the case is that um, the court in general has consistently recognized wide-ranging congressional power. So we have congressional plenary power. And it can alter allotment plans until those plans are executed. And for the statutes, we read those to reserve Congress's power in the absence of a clear expression by Congress to the contrary. So it's a bit different, but the, the court's analyzing this as if to say, well, what we have to do is look at Congress's intent. If there's some clear expression that Congress chose to deviate from its original plans, um, then it's got to be a, it's got to be plain. It's got to be clear, and we can sort of reach that conclusion from the language. So the tribes arguing that the allotment provisions those would retain for the benefit of the tribe. On the question of intent, if there's any land, the treaty notes if there's any land that shall be found to contain coal or minerals, only surface. Only the surface thereof may be allotted, and all minerals on said lands are hereby reserved for the benefit of the tribe. The court read that excerpt as clear evidence of an intent to sever the surface estate from the interest in the minerals, wherever there are minerals that are found to exist. And so on the basis of that distinction, the court concludes that only the surface lands were subject to allotment. So the, it's, it's kind of a quirky case, but you know, what we're looking at really is a combination of a lot of things that we've looked at over <laughs> our you know, three episodes now. But um, when you're talking about individual rights versus the rights of a tribe, it, it gets a little tricky. And here, we've got to go and look at what was Congress actually doing? What was their intent? And the idea is we can figure out congressional intent based on the language that's, in, that's contained in, in the treaty. Um, and it's, it, while it may be a bit ambiguous, the court finds clear language that indicates Congress's intent. And the ultimate outcome is that the surface lands are, are the only ones that are subject to allotment. So the individual that was trying trying to claim a hollow breast that was trying to claim mineral resources, that claim fails. 
and ultimately the the mineral estate is reserved in perpetuity for the tribe. And mo moving on, because I think Babbitt v. Yupi case in 1987, a little bit closer to home, but um, is, is also very interesting for, for a different reason. Um, but still, we're, we're looking at rights of individuals versus rights of the tribe. So with Babbitt v. Yupi, we've got the 1983 Indian Land Consolidation Act, and that gets passed. And the provisions of that piece of legislation are that small interest in Indian lands will escheat to the tribe upon the death of the owner of interest. Now, this whole, this whole bit of law was passed aimed at addressing the problem in Indian country of fractionation. And for those that are, are you know, maybe not familiar with the concept, but in essence, you know, think about the reservation divided up into a grid. And you're a, you're a landowner, and you own um, 160 acres, and that's your allotment. Well, if you have three kids or two kids, however many, when, when you die, your land passes on to those three heirs, assuming you had three kids and no spouse, <laughs> which is a bit difficult. But work, work with me on the example here. You know, the, the land passes to the heirs, and say there are three heirs. Well, those three heirs you know, own a third of the, of the allotment now each, and it may even have defined boundaries, maybe... Um, someone gets the north quarter, someone gets the south, and then the last third is the west, western portion, you know, things like that. It, it, it makes sense if you think about, you know, the, the potential number of heirs. Well, those three heirs have three kids of their own to pass, three heirs of their own to pass the land on to. So all of a sudden, that one third each, you know, get, would get split between the other three kids and same for the second third and same for the last third. So instead of one landowner in, in two generations out, you've got nine on the same 160 acres. And if we're talking about a number of generations that have, have lived and made lives at the homestead, well, you, you can see how this gets exponentially bigger and bigger with each, each generation. To the point that some landowners own own very small fractions of land that of themselves aren't aren't profitable. They 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 don't really um, they wouldn't be anything that someone could earn an income on, let alone anything reasonable or that might um, actually sustain and support a family or or a home or a farm. So the Indian Land Consolidation Act. The idea of it is well, for all of these really small interests those are just going to go back to the tribe. And it's sort of an admission that, yeah, we decimated the land base in the, in the GAW and the General Allotment Act. So here, here's a way we can sort of help tribes reconstitute their land. If, if someone, if a landowner dies and the interest is small, those don't go to the heirs, the next three kids or the next three heirs. It instead will go back to the tribe. Now, this, this bit of legislation was held unconstitutional in Hodel v. Irving. And the idea was that even if it's a small interest, no matter how tiny, it's still a property interest. And you can't have that land as cheat without it being a taking. So 
the it was it was the notion that it was called a, a virtual abrogation of the right to pass on certain kinds of property. So in 1984, Congress goes back to the drawing board and they amend the Indian Land Consolidation Act. And, and the idea in that amendment is we've got a new definition now of what a fractional interest is. Our old bill, yeah, okay, fine, it was imprecise, Supreme Court. So here's, here's what we're specifying um, as, a, as a new definition of fractional interest. And that definition is the land has to be less than 2% of the total acreage. So 160 acres, you know, less than 2% of that. It has to be capable of earning $100 in any one of five years before the decedent's death. So whether you lease it, whether you're you know, extracting minerals from it, whether you're farming it, grazing it, have timber on it, whatever, you've got to be that that less than two that acreage that you have has to be able to generate a hundred bucks in any one of five years before uh, the decedent passes away. If both conditions are met, then that interest is considered a fractional interest, and that will escheat to the tribe. As a part of that, fractionated lands um, that don't meet that criteria, those can go to other fractionated interest holders. And if they want, the tribes can establish codes to override the provisions. So if, if a tribe feels that somehow it's not fair for those very small fractional interests to escheat to them, they can, they can say, no, we're not, we're not going to participate. So again, with this new definition of fractional interest, we've got two conditions. One, less than 2% of the acreage, total acreage. Two, incapable of earning 100 bucks in any one of five years before the decedent had, had passed away. If it meets those conditions, then that interest is considered fractional and it will escheat to the tribe. So enter, enter Yupi in, into this equation. Yupi dies with a will. Yupi's estate is divided among his kids and the total value of the land estate is $1,200. They are fractionated lands for sure, but it's not going to be any further split. So the issue here is whether the S-cheat provision in the amended Indian Land Consolidation Act is constitutional. And again, just to make sure we're up on the jargon, S-cheat, that means the transfer of property goes from a person who dies without heirs to the crown or state, in this case the, the native nation. And so the, the court says we've got to look at the Hodel test to determine the constitutionality uh, of, of takings. And we look at the economic impacts, the effect on investment-backed expectations, and the essential character of the measure. So in other words, coming out of Hodel, we've got three things to look at. Economic impacts, effect on investment-backed expectations, and the essential character of the measure. Now, the way the court applies that three-part Hodel test, 
first looking at economic impacts. According to the court, the change or the new definition of fractional interest, that misses the point. It's not about the value of the income generated from the land. That doesn't matter. But it's about the total value of the parcel, the, the, the fractionated interest. So if you think about that, it's not about how small it is. It's about the fact that that, <laughs> that still is, is property. It's still, um, it's still land that could be owned, even at a fractionated interest, by someone. And that's being taken away. And that's what the court focuses on in terms of economic impacts. So here we're talking about a $1,200 state. So there's no, there's no significant impact on investment-backed expectations. In fact, you could argue quite the opposite, that there is no impact. And as to the essential character of the measure or statute, what it does is it creates a whole class of people um, that are unable to receive fractional interest. And that does not overcome unconstitutionality. Allowing a decedent to leave an interest only to a current owner in the same parcel that shrinks drastically the universe of possible successors. And even though there are tribal codes that can govern the disposition or opt out of the measure altogether, um, at this point in time, there were, those codes hadn't been developed. And so the conclusion or outcome of this case is that the amended ICLA, um, ILCA, uh, is, is unconstitutional. Interesting case because we're not looking so much at Indian law on this, but it's more about the, the constitutionality of, of a taking. And it's, it's frustrating if you're talking about or looking at it from the interest of a tribe's perspective, a tribe as a government, because part of, the, part of what tribes want in general is to recon, re, reconstitute their land bases. And we've got a number of number of tribes that are actively engaged in this process. And, and it's still a hot-button issue in Indian country today. Um, it's sort of tangentially related to the land back movement. You know, this effort for, of tribes to um, reconsolidate their land bases and to actually engage in, in government and regulatory authority over, over their lands or lands that once were theirs. But the court's not concerned about that. The court's concerned about the individual heirs, the individual property owners or potential property owners. And their conclusion is, in effect, if we allow this to stand, we're creating a whole class of people that can't inherit land. However small that parcel might be, however fractionated the interest, it's still property. And if you take property, then you have to pay just compensation. So the whole, the whole issue that the court has is with the SG provision itself. And it's highly problematic uh, to the court in terms of these individual Indians and their ability to inherit property. You know, the court notes it drastically shrinks the universe of possible successors. 
um, in, in the dissent, the, the point is made that Congress actually has ample power uh, to require fractional interest in a lot of lands uh, to consolidate their holdings or risks, uh, abandonment of interest. And the reason <laughs> that cited for the constitutionality of this measure, of this, this amended um, Indian Land Consolidation Act, is congressional plenary power. So it's, it's one of those interesting you know, flip of the coin where you can see congressional plenary power being used as a shield to protect tribal interest vis-a-vis -vis the interest of individual Indians. And the dissent's arguing, hey, Congress has plenary power, and if they want to create a requirement on fractional interest and implement S-cheat provisions, they can absolutely do that because they have plenary power. Of course, that argument doesn't really hold water with, with the majority. Um, but it's an interesting situation where, for once, we see that maybe there are some cracks in the armor of congressional plenary power. Um, it, it's, an, it's an interesting thought. It, it doesn't carry the day here, but it's, um, it's kind of a fun thought exercise to think about, yeah, are, there, are there limits to this? Um, the, the majority might seem to suggest yes, and, and the limit is, is this constitutional issue of takings. Um, but yeah, something, something uh, open for further exploration. And so with that, we're going to close out our section, our three-part series on native lands. Um, we'll be moving, uh, moving on to the next section um, in, the next, uh, in the next episode, and that will actually be a three-part series on land use and environmental protection. And we'll be revisiting some familiar cases, but also looking at um, a couple of really interesting cases out of the Pacific Northwest that that deal with the meets and bounds of the tribe's ability to uh, engage in, in natural resource protection. So, uh, short episode for this uh, for this section, but hopefully interesting. Um, if you've uh, are are lately tuning in, feel free to catch up on the other episodes. Um, but for now, I will uh, sign off and see you on the next uh, on the next episode. Take care. Bye.